0: Hi, I'm Wendy Dean.
1: And I'm Simon Talbot.
0: And this is Moral Matters.
1: Today we are speaking to Catherine Sanderson, who is the Polar Family Professor and Chair of Psychology at Amherst College and the author of a book, Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels. And this was a particularly interesting conversation, I think, because this is broaching the idea of actually putting some of our words into action, how to get people to consider actually moving into just talking about it to doing something about it.
0: Right. I I read her book over the summer and I thought, this is where we start. So I really thought that we should have her on and have a conversation about that. So why don't we have a listen? All right. Catherine Sanderson, we're so happy to have you here with us today. I loved your book, Why We Act, and I'm, I'm really glad that you decided to join us on this conversation. I think our listeners will get a lot from what you found when you wrote the book.
2: Well, thank you so much for this invitation to talk. As you can tell from having read the book, this topic is one that is near and dear to me, and I wrote the book hoping it would make a difference. So thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts with your listeners.
1: Catherine, could you start out by giving us a little bit of background about you and why you went about writing this book?
2: So I'm a professor of psychology at Amherst College, and I was actually had just finished a book that looked at happiness. So looked at literally the predictors of happiness and health and longevity. And that's really what I was focusing on in my my teaching and my writing and my talking. And then just about four years ago now, my oldest child started college and About two weeks in, Andrew called me late one night, and his voice was breaking on the phone, and he said, Mom, a student died in my dorm last night. Oh, wow. And then he told me the story, and the story is one that even if you don't know this particular situation, it's going to sound familiar because it happens all the time. Student was drinking. He fell and hit his head. His friends and roommate watched over him for hours. They made sure he was still breathing. They put him in bed. They strapped a backpack around his shoulders to make sure he wouldn't roll onto his back and and vomit and choke to death. So they were doing all of these things because they cared about him and they wanted him him to be okay. But what they didn't do for nearly 19 hours was call 911. And when they finally called, it was too late. The, The kid was rushed to the hospital the hospital kept him alive on life support until his family could fly in from out of town and be with him when they disconnected him. But the, the student died. He was 19 years old and two weeks into his first year of college. And when my son told me that story, I, my heart was broken. I could put myself in those parents' shoes. I have three kids. But I also, of course, teach lots of college students. And I just kept thinking this could have gone differently. And so in all honesty, I I turned my focus to this issue of trying to understand the psychology of that inaction. And I started really delving into a very different topic.
0: Yeah, as a a mother with a new college freshman, it's the thing that you worry about all the time. A freshman boy.
2: A, A freshman boy, especially.
0: So I can imagine how much that rocked you.
2: So my, my son, of course, you know, uh, was a freshman. I had a younger son at the time who's now a junior in college. I have a daughter and yes, that's as a, as a mom, as a parent, it is the worst call. And again, it just feels so preventable. You know, those weren't, you know, they weren't evil kids. They weren't bad kids. They were, they were kids who were trying to do right by their friend. And yes, that's as a mom, I just, I couldn't help but think if one of those kids had have picked up the phone, that person would just have graduated from college. Now he would be 22, 23.
0: Right. It seems like in the course of writing it, though, you went from just college students to all of us. And you, you broadened the topic to talk about how does this happen at work as well? Or in other sorts of groups, how does this ability to act or not act happen? What did you find?
2: I love that question because yes, you know, as you said, so so we think about the story as well. You know, this is college students. You know, the the adolescent brain or whatever. But so I started digging in to frankly present day, uh, to historical events. So I, I, I read research about the Holocaust. I read research about the civil rights movement and lynchings in the town square. I read stories about whistleblowers and Enron and all sorts of different cases. In the course of writing it. Um, The Olympic gymnastics sex abuse scandal came out. The Harvey Weinstein story came out. And and what struck me as a psychologist was that the psychology of inaction is the same, whether you're talking about in a boardroom, on a school bus, in a locker room, in a hospital. And I mean, all of those cases, I mean, in the Catholic Church, right? I mean, all of those cases— The the psychology of the inaction is the same. And so to me, that's really fundamentally important because I think for many of us, it's easy to say, well, you know, I'm not a 19-year-old, you know, fraternity brother. I'm I'm not a, you know, 20-year-old lacrosse player. I'm not that. But the reality is we're all people. And and I'll say two other things that, that I think feel particularly timely. So my my book came out in April of 2020. And about a week after my book came out, a friend of mine called and said, I want to tell you a story about my daughter, Claire. And her daughter is Asian, had been adopted from China when she was, you know, like one. And Claire was in Boston in March of 2020. You know, so right as the coronavirus pandemic was sort of sweeping, you know, the Northeast at least. And a man on the bus stood up and said, you you should go back to China. You know, you and your people should, should go back to China. You're killing Americans. And what struck Claire's mom was not that the man was, you know, crazy, but that no one on the bus said anything. Bus is crowded. There's a 22, 23-year-old young woman on the bus. No one on the bus thinks, you know, it's her <laughs> bringing coronavirus, and yet no one told him to stop. Then a couple months later, uh, June of 2020, all of us watch the horrific footage coming out of Minneapolis. And when I saw that footage, what occurred to me was actually not Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck. What occurred to me was that there were four police officers there. And the other three should have pulled Derek Chauvin off and said, you know, what are you doing? And had they done so, which was their job to do so, we wouldn't know who George Floyd was because he would be alive and living and working in Minneapolis. And, and so again, when we talk about the psychology of inaction, it's not limited to fraternities or young men, it's all of us, as you noted, in the workplace, on public transportation, in all sorts of settings.
1: Catherine, so this is diving right into the, <clears throat> the meat of it, but what are the lessons, what are the most important lessons for people who, who are in these situations?
2: So really important question. So the consistency across all of those situations is that one of three factors is driving inaction. One, there is some kind of ambiguity about what's happening. So you see or hear something and you're not really sure, you know, is that harmless flirting or is that sexual harassment? You know, is that student, you know, drunk or or unconscious? You know, is that joke kind of funny or is it actually racist or sexist or homophobic? So one set of things is, there's the ambiguity now, the second set of things are things that are not ambiguous at all. There's no ambiguity, but in a group setting, each individual person might say, "Well, I don't really know if this is my responsibility." And so uh, psychologists refer to that as social loafing, and it's why uh, college students often don't like group projects because you worry about being the sucker who does all the work and you know. Uh, the other people, you know, lay lay off and, and don't really exert effort. So another factor is we reduce effort in a group setting. And some of your listeners might might think of that as the classic bystander effect and that, you know, Kitty Genovese story they might remember from intro to psychology in college. But the third factor, and, and the one that I think is the most prevalent for many of us, is fear of consequences. We worry about the consequences. Now, sometimes we worry about, you know, if I step up on public transportation and, and tell somebody to shut up. You know, maybe they're going to have a knife or a gun and I'm going to worry about my safety. But in many other cases, we worry about other things. We worry about being ostracized. Will people not like me in the workplace? Will I hurt my opportunity for career advancement if I report my boss or a colleague for problematic behavior? So people worry about the professional consequences. They worry about the social consequences. And both of those factors, I think, are the major play.
1: so Let's take a hypothetical example. I'm at work and and something like that goes on. Something, some event where I think to myself, boy, maybe I should say something. What are the things that I should be thinking about to make that a sensible, safe interaction? Like, you know, part of this is that people have doubt about what they're doing. How do you get rid of that doubt?
2: So I have a couple different answers. So one, and this is sort of the practical question. I think it really does depend on who you are in the situation. So sometimes there are people who are really vulnerable, who are worried about getting fired, who do not have a lot of job security. And people have said to me, I knew it was wrong. But I also really needed that job. You know, I really needed that job to, you know, to keep food on the table for my kids, you know, and so on. So I think in some cases, people who are in low power positions may not feel able to speak up in the moment, but maybe they can find a way to report it, to report it anonymously. So maybe they can do something in that setting. I also think for people that are in high power positions, they have a responsibility because they don't have that same sort of risk. Mm. So I'm a professor at Amherst College. I have tenure. If I'm in a meeting and somebody says something problematic, I feel pretty comfortable saying, yeah, I kind of find that problematic because I have tenure. I'm safe. But I also feel a responsibility that if something is said to one of my younger colleagues who maybe doesn't have that level of security, maybe they can't speak out and it's okay for me to kind of take it on. So I do think it depends on who you are. I also think there are ways in which people can call out some behavior without making the person feel horrible. So without saying, you know, you're stupid or you're racist or you're wrong, but just to kind of tag it for a minute. "Um, Maybe you're joking and I'm misunderstanding, or could you tell me more about what you mean? Or you probably didn't mean it as it sounded, but some people might think that. So again, ways of letting the person know that this is not okay, but ways of also making it safe for them to to own it and to say, okay, yeah, you know, my bad. One of my favorites is frankly to try to own it. It might be me, and you know, maybe I'm too sensitive, but my sister was sexually assaulted, my brother is gay, my, you know, whatever, a way of being able to say it's about me, not you, but it also clarifies to that person that what they've said isn't okay. Because if everybody just ignores it, then the person who said it assumes, well, everybody else must kind of agree with me, and and that's problematic for the person who said it. But it's frankly problematic for all of the other people in that setting who also then learn, oh... This is the kind of thing I guess it's okay because nobody said anything.
1: You know, it's a really interesting way of putting it because it gets away from the us and them thing, right? It gets away from the um, exacerbating the two extremes that is very prevalent in society right now, which is if I say that you are wrong, then I'm automatically the other extreme. And then that just creates a very uncomfortable atmosphere for everybody.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. And that's why I think, you know, frankly, playing through ahead of time, what are some things that I could say? Right. So often when I'm talking to, you know, reporters or doing interviews like this, et cetera, a person will tell me a story. And sometimes the story will be something that happened to them, you know, 30 years ago or something. And what they'll say is, I didn't know what to say. And then two days later, you know, I'm in the shower and all of a sudden I think of the perfect response. But two days later in the shower is too late. And so I think of it often like we talk about. Practicing CPR, if you practice CPR, you hope you're not going to need to use it, but if you practice it, if you ever do need to use it, you have the skills necessary. So I think of it very much like that, like having a couple of phrases, a couple of statements that just kind of interrupt the moment, call it out, but in a way that doesn't feel accusatory. So
0: I think the examples that you brought up are really great. The sexism or the racism or that sort of thing. Those are issues in healthcare, for sure, that we run up against. But the other thing that we run up against are these, these places where we know what care a patient needs, but it's hard for us to get it for them. And so it's a much more subtle challenge. And I wonder if you have thoughts about how to approach that sort of issue.
2: So I think you've identified such an important point. So one of the issues in the healthcare system, and and this is not necessarily unique to healthcare or the medical setting, is hierarchy. Right issues of hierarchy in which it can be really hard to call out somebody who is in a high-powered position. And so I think in those cases, again, having a set of things to say. So the idea of it's not about you, oh, it's about the patient. You know what? For the patient, let's just do this. Uh, There's a fascinating study that my students actually just read in my social psychology class looking at the difference between phrasing messages about do this for your safety versus do this for the patient's safety, literally a study done in a hospital about hand rising um, hand washing, of course. Pre COVID. So, um, looking at issues of hand washing. And, and that sort of is a classic example of the framing of the message can make a big difference. So, saying, you know, um, I'm sure that this would have been fine and I'm probably overreacting, but you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and do this extra check. Or, you know what? Just to be safe, I had a bad experience. And so, I'm probably being too sensitive, but I had a bad experience a couple weeks ago in which, you know, th- this happened to a patient. And so, you know what? I'm just going to do this extra check check here, let's just wait a minute while I do X, you know, whatever it is. So again, finding ways of saying, Hey, you know, let's just take a minute and it's about me. But, but I want to actually raise one other point, which I think might be particularly relevant. And that is that for many of us, it's very hard to act alone, right? It's, It's very hard to be the one. And so one of the things that I talk about as a strategy that I think frankly works in all different kinds of situations is to find a friend can you find a friend? So maybe if there's sort of a routine thing that isn't really going as it should be going um, in a medical setting, talking to somebody else who you trust. You know, I've noticed this. Um, Have you noticed it? This kind of bothers me. Because doing anything with a friend is helpful. So having some kind of ally who can support you, who can say, oh, yes, I agree with that, or yes, I've noticed that too, can be helpful. And so in certain settings, the power of one can seem insurmountable, but the power of having somebody else in your corner can feel much safer.
0: And that's the real power, for example, behind some of the nurses' unions, where they have grievance processes, where they have the ability to systematically report challenges that they see. And then, as a group, approach the hospital or the system with those grievances.
2: Well, and we see that in all different kinds of settings. So, I mean, that can be true in in law firms um, when paralegals or assistants are calling out, you know, behavior that they see as problematic. Uh, we can see it, in fact, in what has is happening as we're speaking. The Theranos trial is occurring, and and what you see in Theranos is there were two whistleblowers, and they were each threatened with we will sue you, we will sue your families, we will take your house, you know, all these things. But there were two of them together. So I think you're exactly right. The power of the individual can seem very, very scary. So, so having mechanisms, procedures that, that provide some greater safety in that setting can be extraordinarily important. Yeah.
0: In your book, you also talked about some characteristics of people who are able to stand up or or more consistently stand up. And I, I wonder if you could help us understand that.
2: Yes. I mean, to me, this is really one of the most important questions because what we do know and what's really sort of fascinating is that even though the psychology of inaction is very normal, it's very normal, it's a very much a human tendency – there are some people with particular kinds of characteristics and traits that seem to fall prey to the pressures that lead to inaction and silence less so than the rest of us. So what do we know about these people? One, they seem to embarrass less easily. So they're not so worried about, you know, looking stupid or feeling embarrassed. Whereas many of us might say, oh, well, you know, I wouldn't want to. And these people are sort of like, yeah, I look embarrassed. I'll, I'll look stupid. You know, that's okay. So it doesn't feel as bad to them to call out problematic behavior because of the social consequences. So one is that. Two, they really feel empathy. They are very good at putting themselves in somebody else's shoes. If that was my daughter, if that was my spouse, if that was my child, you know, whatever it is, they're very good at putting themselves in somebody else's shoes. Uh, Three, they often seem to have learned these traits from observing people around them. If you study people who stood up in times of Nazi Germany and hid Jewish people in their homes, even, of course, risking their lives, or if you look at white Americans who traveled down to the South in the 1960s and fought for civil rights uh, for African Americans, and you ask them, why did you do it? The response is very similar. My mom was always stepping up. My dad was always doing things for other people. So it sort of appears that we learn what I call the traits of being a moral rebel around the dining room table. We learn it from observing people around us, and and perhaps my favorite. And this might be because I have an argumentative seventeen-year-old daughter. Uh, research also seems to show that practicing arguing with your parents seems to be beneficial. That maybe you get practice arguing <laughs> at home. And that pays off when you're in some other situation and you have to argue with people who are in sources of power. So I'm really clinging to that as like some kind of a silver lining in my raising of Caroline.
0: I think every parent does.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Catherine, one of the things that you wrote about in your book was the qualities of ethical leaders. Can you tell us a little bit about that side of this as well? Because there's the side who call out problems, but there's also the side that prevent problems that are doing the right thing to start with. Who are those people?
2: Well, I I love that question because frankly... We really need to study those people, right? Because I think you're exactly right that we do hear so much about the unethical behavior. So, what do we know about ethical leaders? So, ethical leaders are conscientious, so they're they're diligent, they're they're detailed-oriented, they don't sort of take shortcuts that can kind of put people on a slippery slope, you know, in that sense. Um, they also really focus on their own, what I call moral identity. So they care about being thoughtful. They care about being kind. They care about being compassionate. Uh, And in that sense, I guess they're sort of people, people, people. Um, uh, And they're they're caring about the people who they are working with in that sense. They also tend to have sort of a broad view of what they're trying to achieve. And so that means, you know, being detail-oriented, but it also means focusing on fairness focusing on justice, focusing on human rights. And and perhaps the most important thing, which I'll say, and, I, and, I, and to me, I think this seems really important because I believe that it is often framed in society as sort of a zero sum game, right? Like, well, you know, It'd be nice to be an ethical leader, but we really need to be profitable, right? There's this sense that that being ethical is um, not good for the bottom line.
1: And, I love and, this. This is so, right? this is so yeah, classic.
2: <laughs> but, but don't you think that's yeah. true? Don't you think that's true? Like, like ethics is like a luxury kind of a kind of a thing. Right. Um, mm. So, so what I really love is there's a study that I describe from the Harvard Business Review, and what that study found is that CEOs who are given high marks for character integrity, forgiveness, compassion, actually have a significantly higher return on assets than CEOs whose employees give them low ratings. So to me, that's a fundamentally important point because it's not a zero-sum game. In fact, being an ethical leader pays off. And in all honesty, we can think of cases all around right now when, you know, people looked the other way it, at Michigan State, when there was you know, sexual abuse going on of gymnasts and athletes, we can think of what happened in terms of Theranos, in which people looked the other way. We can think of what happened uh, with Harvey Weinstein's company, in which many people looked the other way. And so, so the issue is, is that ethical leadership pays off, and in fact, pays off more than cutting corners and engaging in problematic behavior.
0: That's fabulous. I just love that. I think that is a fabulous place to wrap this up, and I am so grateful that you came and joined us today. I loved your book. I have all kinds of pages of it marked out, and I share it with people regularly. I think it's a great thing for us to think about how do we start speaking up and being those moral rebels.
2: Thank you for those kind words. Um, Writing the book felt to me It it felt there was a sense of urgency, in all honesty, because what I kept thinking is we all, as parents, but as people in the world, we all want to live in a world of moral rebels, right? We want to live in a world in which people call out problematic behavior. We want to live in a world in which people do the right thing, even if they worry about the social or professional consequences, and we really want to live in a world in which some kid picks up the phone and calls 911 when our kid is in trouble. And so to me, you know, I love talking about the book. I loved writing the book because I want to live in that world. And I honestly believe, and some of my own research bears out that understanding the psychology of inaction can actually provide us all with the tools that we need to create this world of moral rebels in our personal and professional lives. So thank you so much for the kind words and thank you all so much for the opportunity to talk today.
1: Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Wendy and I have spoken about this several times and how easy it is to talk to somebody who's a college professor and can essentially teach us as we go along without having to ask a whole lot of questions. So as with some of our podcasts, you'll you'll notice that Catherine was able to (laughs) use this opportunity to teach us a lot of things as well as uh, talk about her own book. I think the part of this that sticks with me the most is... The idea that there are ethical leaders that we need to support when it comes to actually making this kind of change.
0: Yeah, I was so happy with how she talked about that because we think a lot about who our leaders are, but we don't think about how they think about leadership as often as I think we might want to. Mm -hmm. So that sense of how do they attend to their own moral framework? How do they think about the people that work for them? how do they set those people up for success? And just thinking through how someone leads, not just what they do as a leader is really
1: critical. That brings up the point that leadership is not just management. Leadership is not just coming up with a series of rules or a series of ideas that you move forward with. It's getting the team together. It's actually getting people to act together. It's getting a team to work together. And it's figuring out the ethical and moral framework with which you're going to do that.
0: Yeah, it's more than the metrics like Jerry Mueller said on the last episode. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Yeah. (laughs) A lot of what Catherine spoke about applies very broadly to many of the things we talk about. And a lot of the examples that come up are examples of racist behavior or behavior that's clearly, you know, many of us would feel is, is wrong and inappropriate but of course there's a translation to this more specifically to healthcare uh in the setting of what we talk about Wendy
0: yeah i i thought it was great how she started as talking about college students but then we were able to broaden it to say this isn't just about an adolescent brain this is about this is about human behavior and the more we can understand about how each of us behaves or thinks or has the impulse not to act in certain situations, it allows us to choose other. Mm -hmm. And we can choose to act, which means we can choose to change.
1: I think it's interesting how you talk about the idea that we start off talking about the adolescent brain. The truth is that maybe an awful lot of the decisions and behaviors that get made, (laughs) we pretend we're a whole lot different to that, but sometimes we're not.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's so much pressure in healthcare right now that it's easy for us to look at what we need to do in the short term just to survive.
1: Classic adolescent thinking, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's it's that scarcity mindset too. And the more we can recognize that we're doing it, the more we have the opportunity to choose differently.
1: And choose positively differently, right? Not just choose not to act, which is what we get told all the time, right? Don't do this. Don't say that. Don't do something that's wrong, but choose to act in a um, proactive, intentional way to either call out things that are inappropriate or actively try and work towards positive change.
0: Yeah. And I, I loved how she said, one of the things we need to do is to practice. We need to practice acting the way we want to act put ourselves into that hypothetical situation and decide what we're gonna say, decide how we're gonna approach it. Yeah. That's really critical.
1: So that's actually a really good reminder for all the people listening to us, which is we want you to act and we want you to decide what you want to say and what the things that you're thinking about are And actually call it out. Let us know what the things that are going on with you are. Let us know who you'd like us to speak to. Let us know what the things that you're experiencing are so that we can broaden our own view of what's going on in healthcare.
0: Yeah, for sure.
2: For sure.
1: Well, as always, thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios.
0: To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work that we do, you can make a donation while you're there.
1: Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes. So if you can continue the conversation, please go there. And you can spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, it makes it easier for other listeners to find us.
0: Thanks as always for listening
1: and stay well.